This week, I rode my bike over to the east side, made my way over that giant mountain to get to Redmond, and I am at Postdoc Brewery, where I'm hanging out with co-founders Debbie Chambers and Tom Schmidlin. Our conversation was a two-beer-long conversation, so I'm going to split it into a couple parts. This week is part one. I'm the Cycling Certified Cicerone, and this is Washington Beer Talk. I'm Debbie Chambers. I'm one of the owners here at Postdoc, and this is Tom. Yes, Tom Schmidlin, uh, one of the owners also, head brewer, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, I was reading y'all's website to try to get a good grasp of who all is involved. So tell me about the rest of the crew. Uh, the rest of the crew is our spouses, really. Um, Debbie's husband, Johnny, um, and my wife, Julie. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, I've been around here, and I've actually seen you before. I've been coming to the brewery for a while. I used to work at Microsoft, and I would make the trip down to Postdoc for lunch occasionally. And that was kind of the way to, that was the way to roll. Um, so I've seen you around. I know you've been around. I haven't seen you yet. I don't know exactly what your role in the brewery is. How about, we, how about you tell me what you all are up to here, how you got involved well, um, honestly, I, I want to say it was Johnny's idea. I've been a home brewer for a very long time, um, and it was always something that I, I wanted to do, but it was really uh, Debbie's husband who uh, encouraged me the most to, you know, let's just finally do this, because we, we talk about it all the time. We, we know each other because we're neighbors. Um, so, you know, Debbie and Johnny have been involved from the start, um, from before we even found a space to open a brewery. Um, so I'm, like I said, I'm a head brewer. Uh, I don't know. We all play a lot of different roles. Debbie is, you know, operations and I don't know. You can describe what you do better than I can. Well, as a small business, you have to wear many hats, uh, finances, ordering grain, uh, managing, helping manage the tap room, overseeing events, uh, overseeing our wholesale team. So there's, there's many hats. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. Um, Okay, so let's see. So tell me about postdoc. So what is what's sort of the origin story of the brewery? Well, like I said, I've been homebrewing for a really long time, um, and while I was in graduate school, so I mean, the origin of the name really is a postdoc is what you do uh, once you finish your PhD. Uh, you go and you do, you know, you're a postdoc, you're doing a postdoc. It's the, like it's the name of the job and the person, um, and really, it's just further training. Um, or really it's people taking advantage of your knowledge uh, to, and paying you nothing. Um, and people will go and do that in the hopes that they will end up a professor somewhere. Uh, but that's my cynical view of, of postdocs. But uh, really they're, they're PhD, uh, they're people with PhDs who are not professors, um, but they generally work in research labs. So um, it was kind of a joke name that I gave my garage brewery um, because I was in, even when I was in graduate school, after like the day of being in graduate school ended, uh, or the, say it was the end of the week, uh, and it's my weekend thing is doing, you know, brewing, and so I'm, it's a postdoc. So uh, it really started as a joke, um, postdoc brewing in my garage. But then eventually when it came time to name the brewery, um, we didn't have another name. Yeah, we talked about lots of different things, but this really was, you know, about about Tom and, and his experience, and then making that a production reality. Yeah. 
Okay, so this was so it was your joke. So you're the postdoc. Yes. Okay. What's your uh, what's your degree? In biochemistry. Biochemistry. Okay. Cool. Very. Uh, yeah. The, the classic engineering-minded uh, chemistry obviously has a lot of uh, a lot of space in the beer world. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> My undergraduate degree was mechanical engineering. Um, when it came time I, and. I started homebrewing in my undergraduate days when uh, the time came, you know, between jobs, I decided to go back to school and I decided that, you know, there were really a lot of options, but I wanted to study yeast because of my love of brewing, uh, my fascination with yeast. So uh, that's why I ended up in biochemistry. It was basically the first program that I could get into that would let me study yeast. So you had a sort of undergrad obsession with brewing that led to your obsession with yeast, then to your degree. Are you finding that 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 um that your like your doctoral degree is actually helping you uh, here? I think it does. Um, you know, there's a there's a lot of things that I learned uh, in graduate school. Um, you know how to really the main thing is how to figure things out, and that's been just a, a huge benefit to uh, running a business fixing things that break, uh, you know, just all, every aspect. Uh, you know, being scientifically minded is, is certainly helpful when it comes to formulating recipes and brewing beer and, you know, following procedures. Um, but that's really only part of what I got out of graduate school. Mm -hmm. Okay. What about you, Debbie? What did, what, um, what's your background? How did you get involved? So my, my background is in textile manufacturing. Um, so whenever we first started talking about the brewery, um, I was at a point in time where I'd moved here from Northern Ireland. My kids were in school. It's what's next for me. Um, you know, need to get a job. Um, so this was an opportunity to, you know, work for myself and not have the commitment of working for someone else and the vacations that go along with that and whatever. So this was a good uh, way back into uh, work life for me. Uh, so the textile manufacturing um, is, this is not textile, it's beer, but it's very similar, uh, you know, big tanks, hot water. <laughs> so it's, it's a very similar thing. So the manufacturing side um, experience has been uh, a good crossover mm -hmm. for, for the two. How do you, um, what are some examples maybe of applying like textile manufacturing to beer manufacturing? Well, my experience in textile manufacturing varied from uh, product development, looking at what the customer wants, working with customers, trying to come up with products, developing products. So it's about process and procedure and raw ingredients. So it's it's very much uh, the same type of thing, a different product, but a very similar process. So it's kind of putting processes around that and systems around that. So, yeah. So I take it you lived in the area, you lived in the Redmond area when you decided to yeah. get postdoc going. And you, like you corrected me earlier, you have been here since since the conception or since the yeah. beginning of the yes. brewery. Um, what were sort of those first steps like? You know, you're choosing a place in Redmond, you want to be in this area. Um, you wound up next to Marymore Park, which is a fantastic spot to be yeah. in, riding your bike here. You get to just ride to the park and, you know, like once you're over the mountain, like I said, you know, it's a nice, <laughs> it's a very nice ride. Um, but anyway, what, what were some of those first, you know, those steps kind of like? Well, part of it was that, um, you know, while I was in graduate school and afterwards, I was working in a couple of different labs as a postdoc and, you know, making the daily commute. And it was a little bit frustrating because if I wanted to stop for a beer on the way home, um, you know, there was nowhere, there was nowhere for me to go uh, without 
basically extending my trip an extra 20 to 20 minutes or at least just dealing with traffic uh, one way uh, getting you know to various you know if I want to go to Black Raven I'm probably tacking on an hour uh, between getting try to get across Redmond and sit and have a beer uh, there was just no like quick stop uh, anywhere along the way so I, we really focused in this narrow area next to Marymore Park. Uh, you know, I went and looked at places in Kirkland and looked around uh, the greater Seattle area for what would be possible, but we really wanted to be here. Um, the, the fact that we ended up right next to the park was just, that's just luck. Um, but, the, you know, really we wanted to be in this, it's a pretty narrow area, this, uh, Redmond calls it the the Marymore Development Area or Sub Marymore Area. They have some weird name for it, but yeah. you know it's a pretty narrow area, or pretty pretty small area that uh, that we focused on. And we looked at multiple spaces around here. One up the street that would have been fantastic, but the the landlady was crazy. Um, it you know I mean. You've been to enough breweries, you've seen all the stuff, you have some concept of how long it takes to actually build a brewery, and she wanted us to agree to move out with three months' notice if the, uh, if the new owners didn't want us there, um, which obviously doesn't work at all. Um, I mean, it took us nine months to build this place out, uh, and that was after spending a year and a half looking for a space. So that obviously, three months was not going to work. It was safe to say you kind of knew what you wanted to do, and like you already kind of had some equipment in mind and stuff like that, so you're kind of through the hard part, and it's just a matter of finding a place to put it. Yeah, so it's like I, nine months. We we kept we kept a lot of our options open in terms of what, what exactly we were going to do because um, obviously different spaces are suitable for different types of businesses. I mean, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna produce beer and and all that, but like. Are we going to go small? Are we going to go, you know, bigger? Are we going to have food? Are we not? It really, we had, this is the model I was most comfortable with, you know, a larger system, a tap room, and then some uh, outside sales. But, um, but we were really open to doing something else if, you know, the space that we ended up with, you know, really suited a different model. Um, one of the things I want to talk about is sort of your, your existing model and other models you considered. Um, but before we talk about that, you sort of mentioned Black Raven and how it was, you know, that was the kind of the, an hour out of your way to go to. And, you know, in my mind, like, oh, yeah, we're all in the same area. But mm. I, I remember how traffic is out here. Yeah. Um, now that I'm on my bike, it's really great. But uh, um, but in a car or on a bus, it was just uh, absolute mayhem. But I guess the question I wanted to ask was, what was the beer scene like? Um, so you guys have been here, uh, if I'm remembering what... 2014. Okay, so, okay. so just, just actually, so a little longer than I thought. Okay, yeah. yeah so just yeah. Um, so yeah, so you've been here since 2014. What was the beer scene like then? Because what I've heard said is that breweries that are now four or five years old are older than half of all the breweries in Seattle or in Washington. Wow, that's crazy. Isn't that yeah? That is crazy. We now, uh, I've heard that said. I've not verified that, but I imagine it'd be pretty easy. It to verify. might be true. The um, you know, we talked about when we, when we were writing our business model, there were about 150 breweries in Washington. By the time we got open, there were 250, and now there's, I think, over 400. Um, and there have been some some closures, and it's possible that that's right. Uh, you know, we could be older than 50% of the breweries. Um, you know, the beer scene in Redmond, at least, um, consisted of Black Raven, um, Hi-Fi, which has since closed, uh, Bushnell Craft, which has since closed, uh, Mac and Jack's, which um, is still open and they're 
they're three buildings over. We're super close to them. Yeah. Um, but they don't have a retail presence. Um, you know, in terms of retail beer, there's restaurants around and everything. Malton Vine is a notable uh, bottle shop and, and, you know, tap room, whatever you want to call it. They've oh, got yeah, I remember that place. That was, a good, that was a great way to get a little bit of lunch drunk on when you're when Yeah, you're for sure. Yeah. For sure. And that uh, the Euro place right next door is fantastic. Too. <laughs> oh, man, that Euro place. Or the teriyaki <laughs> place on the other side. That was a... Yeah. Uh, Wombo combo. That was the hardest decision I ever made once a week. <laughs> yeah, they had they have some. It's a good scene over there. But um, but like I said, that added a lot of time to my trip. Even just even just going to Malton Vine, uh, you know, it's a fifteen minute. It can be fifteen minutes just from. It's I think it's less than a mile. You could pretty much walk it faster than you could drive it um, with the traffic just getting there. And then you got to turn around and fight traffic the other way, go, getting back. And then then you're back on track to where you were. You know when you made the turn. So. <laughs> but really, I can't think of what else was here when we opened. Got it. I um, one of the breweries I have, you know, Mac, Mac and Jack's is a brewery that I've got so many questions about. I've not like I um, but they've been so mysterious because when I moved here five years ago, they were everywhere. There were there was Mac and Jack's on tap in every bar, and there was Georgetown on tap in every bar. Since then, everything has completely changed. Yeah. Mac and Jack's now still common, but it's not as ubiquitous as it was five years ago. And uh, I really want to know like their side of that story. But what's what's y'all's side of that story? Because you are you're a brewery that opened up and said, yeah, we got to steal some Mac and Jack tap handles because otherwise, like, that's it. Right. Well, I mean, we definitely weren't specifically targeting Mac and Jack's. I mean, everybody's trying to carve out their own little space. Um, Beer drinking, the consumer is pretty promis promiscuous. Um, there's a lot of, you know, people who really just want what's new. Um, you have your loyalists. I mean, we have people who come in, and if, if their beer's not on tap, they're going to be angry about it. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind, too. But the general consumer, bars, I mean, we have bar customers that... Um, you know, if we've sold them a keg of something in the past, they don't want that again. They're like, oh, that was great beer. It went really well. Our customers loved it. Uh, what else do you have? I don't want that same thing ever again. <laughs> so, you know, we're constantly trying to come up with new things. But so the, the market has changed quite a bit. Uh, when Mac and Jack's first got into the market, you know, they were really, it, it was basically one beer, saturate everywhere. Um, and they did a great job with that. And when, so Manny, who started Georgetown uh, among the founders came from Mac and Jack's, used that business model uh, to open Georgetown with Manny's Pale Ale. And they were just making that one beer and pushing it out everywhere. I don't think there's room in the market for breweries that can do that anymore. Mac and Jack's has branched out and they're doing a lot of different things. They're making some awesome beers over there. Um, same with Georgetown. I mean, they, they make some great beers, um, but you don't, you don't see breweries opening up up and saying we're going to make this one beer and we're just going to push that everywhere because you know it just doesn't work yeah um I, some of the breweries that we see have success nowadays are starting smaller um and rather than make you know 30 kegs of something they're making 10 kegs of something and when it's gone it's gone and they're on to the next thing um and so they're you know they're focused on beer bar customers as a, as opposed to restaurant customers restaurant customers seem, tend to want the same beer over and over again you know they um, they print their menus, they have, you know, this is what we're going to serve. They want it for three months. Uh, and then they're on to some other brewery or some other beer from your brewery. It just kind of depends on the customer. Um, <coughs> so, so you're starting to get going on the different types of customers and different types of consumers. You've got this manufacturing background. You've mentioned how, um, 
they, uh, how, you know, one of the things you do is look at what customers want and yeah. how to do this kind of thing. How does the, you know, how do the different kinds of consumers, and maybe you can sort of name a couple that you can think of, um, how do they impact how you manufacture your beer? Um, I think, uh, I mean, we're looking at the, the market in general. We're looking at our, our tap room, what the customers expect in our tap room. We're looking at wholesale accounts. Uh, when we first started um, making beer, we, we wanted to keep four or five beers on uh, available for wholesale. Um, I would go out with the sales uh, guys and, and meet customers, and the first thing they said was, well, what have you got new? They didn't want to know that we have our four core beers in inventory. They wanted to know what's, what's the new beer, what's coming next. They, so we, instead of having those core beers in inventory all the time, we started putting in new beers and, and trying to create uh, new beers and different beers to give uh, a choice. Uh, to give that variety. What are some of the side effects of that? Because obviously, you know, you, you talk to breweries, especially the big right. successful breweries like Fremont. I was yeah. just talking to them and they say like, yeah, we well, want to focus on quality and it's really important to put the same, like make sure your yeah. beer is the same every time you put it out. But they lamented at the same problem, which is that you can't, you have to uh, provide variety. Right. And, um, and so like, what, what's up with that? You can't maintain quality, finger quotes, quality, which I guess means consistency, right. um, while you're making a new beer every time, right? Yeah. Right, you're not building up to having it exactly the way you want it. You're maybe, we're definitely doing more one-offs, but a lot of them are, you know, maybe a core type of beer. We do a pop quiz range, which is the hazy IPA, and we do, we start it with a recipe, and then we do a different version of it. So we're changing a few things, changing the hops, adding some different ingredients so that we're, it's, it's so we're building on the quality, but it's, it's still a different product, maybe a different hop profile. Mm. One of the things I, um, oh, I want to talk about trendy beers, mm. uh, but before I do that, I want to talk a little bit more about the different types of consumers because I'm sort of trying to imagine, you know, who they all are. Right. So, so there, in my mind, there's, um, there's like the new beer consumer, mm -hmm. the people who are maybe converting from like their old beer life, right. you, know, the, you know, the Bud Light life um, over to a craft beer life. There's people who are discovering craft beer for the first time. And then there's the, like the IPA lovers who I imagine are, because as I know that IPAs are the most popular beer yeah. at every, every brewery. I don't imagine yours is going to be an exception. No, um, then IPAs are the most popular one. But then you talk about all these people who want nothing but variety. And like, I, that's who I am. I don't come in and get the variety. Uh, I don't, I come in for the variety. Um, but I also, I guess I'm a sucker for the IPA, but are there two different people? Are the people who are suckers for IPAs one type of consumer and then the people who need variety all the time, a different type of consumer? Um, another thought I've been experimenting with is sort of the uh, the brew the beer consumer like I don't know evolutionary life cycle where you start off as a light beer drinker you become you drink an amber and go oh neat and then you discover IPAs and go this is great and then you start branching out to all the other different types of things and start drinking stouts and Belgians and da 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 da, da. and I think that everyone always follows the same pattern they go oh yeah I really like dark beers now right. and then right after they're done with IPAs they go dark beer then they go Belgian or then they go sour, sour. then they go <laughs> yeah yep yeah okay good right. so you're right you're yeah. on board with me yeah all right. Um, anyway, I've been, I've been rambling. So, but from a tap room point of view, we have 10 taps and we try to keep a variety that will, uh, you know, satisfy all of those different types of customers. The, I want the Alpha Factor IPA, I want it every time I come in, and then uh, someone that wants barrel aged or they want a sour. So, 
we're trying to give a variety, dark beers, light beers. Um, you know, we, we, we like to offer a light beer. We have a hydrogen blonde for people who come in who are Bud Light drinkers who don't, you know, this is their first experience. They want something what's, what's like a Bud Light or something like that. So the, the, we, we try and satisfy that. And then on the wholesale market, we, we try to make our core beers for restaurants, again, that, um, that want to take our... Um, Kilty McSporn Scottish Ale, and they want it to have it on their menu for three months, and then they they want to be done with that. But we've got to keep that available for them, and then we're still trying to produce new batches of different beers to release as as often as we can. So it's a it's a balancing act between trying to ensure that we can keep the customers that want our core beers satisfied and have inventory against uh, customers who want beer bars that want a sixth of a brown ale and a sixth of a sour and a sixth of a barrel aged. So it's trying to keep that, that variety to hit all of those different things. And we're limited with what production we have, so we can't, we can't always do, do that, but we try our best. Um, what are y'all's thoughts on the sort of trendy beers? I mean, obviously like trendy beers, the, that what a trendy beer is changes every three months, like what the, what the current style is anyway. But as far as chasing trends and trying to keep up with that, or perhaps ever trying to set your own trend, well, you know, what are your thoughts along those lines? I'm not necessarily anti-trendy beer. It just kind of depends on the trend. Um, Did you, you know, do a glitter beer ever? <clears throat> we have not done a glitter beer. Um, Those came and went, so I don't I, think anyone I think it's. Bother. I think the concept is pretty funny. Um, I would not try to put one in the market. Um, I only ever had one, and it was a tasty beer. I mean, the glitter doesn't add any flavor. Uh, you know, there are things that there are things that we won't do. Like, uh, I won't make a green beer just for the sake of turning it green. Um, to me, that's dumb. Um, but if there was some flavoring that we liked that turned the beer green, I'm not against that, you know, but color just for the sake like no of color. No one needs a cilantro beer, though. <laughs> I like cilantro. I, I love cilantro, yeah. too. But could, be, could be good. Okay, you think about that. it. I'll be yeah, back for a cilantro Have we done a cilantro beer? We have not put cilantro in a beer. We, we've done a lot beer. of different casks and... and My mom, hi Terry, loves to drink green drink, which is just like blended up partially in cilantro, and you know it's supposed to be this health tonic. Not sure I buy it, but you have it. You, you know, you have a drink of it. You go, oh, you know what? This at the very least tastes fresh and like a garden, which I guess is a feeling I like feeling. So maybe you could make some kind of garden beer with a lot of green in it. And then sell it on St. Patty's Day and call it something like that. Not that it would ever, not that the people who drink St. Patty's beer and the people who drink health beer, whatever are that equivalent. is, are ever going to yeah. be the same. Yeah, I, you know, the obviously hazy IPA, I don't know if we can still call it a, a trendy thing because they're just, they're so popular. They're, I mean, I don't see that going anywhere. Uh, they're popular for a reason, you know, they're delicious beers. Um, they've, they've got nice fruitiness, they're not that bitter, people can drink them. Um, we make them. Uh, I like them. If you know, if there's some trendy thing that I don't like, then I, I don't know that we would actually make it. Uh, I like most beers, though, so that <laughs> really gives us a, a really a broad range of, of what we can brew. Uh, I've even made some beers that that I think we made really well that I didn't care to drink because they're just not my thing. But uh, what's an example of a style that you? personally think you made really well but don't like to drink um i don't really like the blonde ale no I, it it does well it like people love it we get medals for that beer 
Um, but I'm not a Blondale person. It's not. Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, that that's an interesting point that you like. You know that there's a couple beers out there that you just don't bother really drinking. Are are you similar in that, Debbie? Uh, I'm not an IPA fan. Really? <laughs> no. Oh my I gosh, like dark beers. I like the blondes. I like the sours. I'm I'm not a huge. Um, yeah. I've sort of run like that is maybe the final step in the beer drinkers evolution because once you've run the entire track and have learned to like every style of beer, you finally get to go back and say you either go back and go, "Yep, I'm IPAs from here on out. And this is it. That's I'm one of the sixty percent that buys only IPAs," and or you pick a style or you pick a couple styles and fully eliminate them, which I think is fair. I've basically eliminated the. Uh, the holy mountain genre of like funky barrel aged shenanigans mm-hmm. um and barrel aged stouts too they're kind of gone out of my list as well not that i not that i don't mess with them ever but i uh, you know not I, I do like that yeah but you know gotta do what you gotta do mm-hmm. pick what you like and don't don't be ashamed well I, I i completely agree i always tell people they're like oh well i only drink bud light it's like well look if you love bud light then just drink bud light that's fine you're not hurting my feelings yeah uh, if you've tried all the other beers and don't like any of them great you know what you like. Go for that. Uh, it's the people who won't try anything else that, that tend to. Are you giggling because you know someone who won't try anything else? <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> is it you? No, it's no, not. No, Debbie tried I'm, everything. I'm everything as long I'm as it doesn't have oranges in it because she's allergic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And even then I've tried some of those because he forgets. <laughs> yeah. So he, here, try this. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Man, nothing's worse than being allergic to oranges. I am too. What's Are up? you? Yeah, it's That's to- weird. That's I, I, I only know like three people. One's my sister yeah. and my nephew and my son. That's the yeah. three people. So there you go, four. Follow-up question always is, well, can you eat grapefruits and lemons and limes? I'm like, so can I. <laughs> it's That's not hilarious. citrus. It's not vitamin C. That's killing me. I just can't eat oranges. It's weird. Okay, yeah. well, there, there we go. go. Welcome uh, to the club. Yeah, I guess we should have. I welcome should, myself to your club. We, <laughs> we should have an orange club. Huh? Wouldn't it be a non-orange club? Non-orange club. The non-orange club. Yeah, the blue club. Which okay. I guess. you guys are actually secretly related. Oh, this is possible. Are you Maybe. Irish? No, not at no. all. Mm-hmm. My girlfriend is. Mm-hmm. A little well, bit. that's not going <laughs> to. <laughs> mm. Um. Okay, so you mentioned now a couple of times that your business model involves wholesale beers and taproom beers. That's a pretty common one. The combo business model is something that a lot of breweries in this area are doing. Something that I've noticed recently and sort of have decided to take as gospel in my own mind is that in the future there will be no, like there will be way fewer production breweries, ones that do wholesale, even on a, a minor scale. I think that we're getting into a saturation point here where the local brewery that sells just beer to its closest mile is like, there's going to be infinite room for that. You know, for every bar there is on the streets, you know, there, there's still only one brewery for every 10, you know? So like there's a, um, so there's space for that. You guys got in a while ago. You have some wholesale. What does your business model kind of look like? What, where do you see the future of it going in terms of, you know, the percentage of wholesale to taproom sales? Um, I don't know. Just kind of go start going in that direction. <laughs> That's a lot of stuff I just said. Yeah, I don't I, I honestly don't know what the future holds exactly. I mean, we've uh, there's a lot of things going on. I, I think you're right that the. Um, the hyper local brewery, the the nano that you know only makes and sells beer in their tap room. There's a ton of room for more of those, 
uh, you know, as far as being, you know, having a larger system like we do, making a lot of the same kind of beer and trying to push it out into the market, it's tougher. It's not, it's not impossible, um, but you know, the margins are lower, uh, the expenses are higher. Uh, obviously, those things are tied, but um, you know, and it creates a lot of logistical problems for us. Uh, it's a lot more work to try to do uh, wholesale beer um, between, you know, we got sales salesperson, de delivery driver, we gotta have the van, we gotta, it's a lot more to manage than just um, let's make beer and put it on tap in our tap room. Uh, even more government stuff to deal with because you're, you're selling beer outside. It, it just affects, there's, it's so much more work uh, that may not be worth it unless you're gonna get pretty big. Uh, and I'm not sure how big that is. You know, it, it might not be worth it if you can't hit, I don't know. I, I don't want to throw out numbers. It just depends on, you know, how you're controlling your expenses, if it's worth it or not. Um, you know, you, you'd have to do the math to say, hey, we can, if we sell this many barrels at this price, that'll pay for all of the things, you know, all of the costs associated with doing wholesale beer. Um, so, you know, obviously with the equipment we have, we're committed to wholesale beer. We're not going to stop doing that. Um, you know, we have, if, if I brew, you know, we have a 15 barrel system. We have some 45 barrel tanks. If we're brewing 90 kegs of IPA, we can't go through that in our tap room before that beer is too old. Uh, so, you know, we're committed to wholesale, um, but the tap room does really well for us and we're not, we're not against having a second tap room. Um, we're not against, we're not really against anything. Uh, it's really going to depend on what opportunities present themselves. We definitely are looking at things with an open mind and uh, just trying to see what, what things present themselves. But we're taking into account what the current market is out there and, and being realistic about what we, we, what targets we set ourselves. Yeah. You, um, you're hesitant to name a, like a barrel amount, you know, sort of a break-even barrel point. Um, and so at risk of maybe betraying some of your own financials, you don't want to give too much away about, would you hazard a guess as to what a good amount of barrels you'd want to sell or brew is if you wanted to break even on a wholesale? It's not so much about our finances. It's about, um, it just depends on how someone is doing things and what kind of beers you're selling. And, you know, if we could sell, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, if, well, no, if we, if we talk about like ones, you know, some beers are, uh, they're less expensive to make than others. If, you know, we're also, we're entirely self-distributed, uh, you know, we, we're paying good wages, you know, all of these things are going to play a role in, in uh, you know, what kind of barrels you might need to sell, you know, how far you have to drive, uh, you know, how much we make off of a keg, you know, the, the exact same keg delivered to, to Tacoma versus delivered to Redmond there's a huge difference in how much money you're actually making off of that. So it, it just depends on where you are. Uh, there, there are too many variables, I think, to actually come up with a number. Okay, fair enough. Um, if I were to, for a listener who's sitting here thinking maybe they want to own, start a brewery and they want to do wholesale, would you say it's in the 50 to 500 barrel range, the 500 to, to like 3,000 barrel range or 3,000 and above? I mean, again, it, it's going to depend on your expenses. If you're talking about, um, you know, a single salesperson, you know, your your delivery van, I, I think it's probably in the 
it's probably over 500 barrels, but it's not. It's not 3,000. It's it'd probably be between 500 and 1,000, depending on, uh, just depending on a whole bunch of different things. You could, if you could push, you know, say 300 barrels uh, in a three-mile radius of your brewery, then that's probably going to pay for itself. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, that's kind of at least for us that would be impossible because. A lot of the three miles is super sparsely, or sparsely populated, uh, especially with this giant park next to us and all the, it's not quite rural, but as you head, you know, east of here, uh, there's a lot less density. There's no, no bars until you get pretty far away. So Yeah. I appreciate you letting me push you for that answer. I know that like, of course, all the variables are just too absurd because if you wanted to get within, you know, three miles of enough people to sell 300 barrels, it's now you're living in the city and all of a sudden your, uh, now your rent is way higher. So that number's got to change. Yeah. So like, yeah, yeah so it gets, it gets crazy. Thank you for just spitting out a number and everybody take that with like as many grains of salt as you all can. All the salt. Yeah. Salt. Very salty. That's a very salty number. Um, I, a phrase that for some reason I'll, I, I have not forgotten is I was here at this brewery. I was at postdoc doing a tour of the back room and you may have been a tour guide. And, um, I was here with my buddy, um, my buddy, Jordan Marchese, who I think you guys brewed his peacher and the rye recipe. Um, and uh, maybe we'll chat about that a little bit. Um, but we were getting a tour of the back, and we were talking about how big the brewery was. And I th did at the time you have a ten barrel, and now you've upgraded to fifteen, or was it always fifteen? It was always fifteen. Okay, I, in my mind it was a ten barrel, um, but you had said like, yeah, well, we got it. I think, it, and I think it was you um, said, yeah, we got a fifteen barrel brewery, no other size, just penciled out. You couldn't, you couldn't pencil out a, a business model that worked with anything less than fifteen barrel brewery. Um, it was the first time I'd ever heard the phrase penciled out. And uh, like, I, or like I tried to pencil this out is what it was. And then I like, I was like, oh, I like that. You know, pencil that out, do some back of the napkin math and try to <laughs> pencil it out. Anyway, I just weird memory I have of this specific brewery. Um, yeah, I mean that, you know, that, that made sense at the time when we were um, basically saying, okay, we're gonna have a tap room and we're going to do wholesale. And so how are we going to make all this work and have enough beer for both? And, you know, the numbers, we had numbers that, uh, of course, you know, business models, uh, you know, you write your business plan and, and then I don't want to say throw it away exactly, but you can't trust that any of that stuff is going to be accurate going forward. It's good to refer back to it and say, this is what the plan was. This is what is actually happening. What is the new plan? Um, you know, it's, it's useful in that sense, but so much of that is, uh, it's just made up. Like you're taking, you're guessing at so much of it. Um, it's not, it's not super. Yeah. Helpful. And I think the market has changed a lot in, in the five years since we wrote the business <laughs> yeah. plan. So, well, like I said, when we, when we wrote that plan, there were 150 breweries in Washington. So two and a half years later, when we finally got open, there were 250. So things, things change. And obviously now there's a bunch more. If you were to go back and do it again, buying equipment, buying your 15 barrel brew house, or what, what would you change? You know, if anything, better floors, uh, <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I don't know that um, I don't know that I would change that much. It's it's working well for us. Things have been great. Um, we've got a lot of good things going on. It's all been very positive. So uh, I don't know that that would necessarily be the case if we'd had a ten barrel system. We're brewing more often. I mean, as it was, that first year was uh, was an absurd amount of work, 
if I had to brew even more often than I was brewing, because I was I was doing it by myself, um, ah, that would have been tough. I'd probably be divorced. <laughs> uh, it was uh, it was a ton of work that first year, even brewing you know 15 barrels at a time. So uh, I don't know if we'd had a 20, it might have been easier. Yeah. So you would never go. You certainly wouldn't go smaller, but you may have gone bigger. Well. If I was going to, go, going to go smaller, I wouldn't go to 10. I'd maybe go to a five and then focus on taproom only. But I think with a, with a, for us, with a taproom and, and wholesale business model, 15 made sense. And 20, if you can, if you can afford the initial buy um, and, you know, figure it, well, configure your system so that you can brew smaller batches because we can't brew less than 15 barrels. It's, uh, it's because of the steam jackets. It's just not possible. Uh, so, you know, if I want to, if I want to do something and you know test batch is 15 barrels yeah yeah okay that's a, that okay okay that's a, that's brutal yeah okay you guys don't you know you maybe you do have a pilot system back there a small no, thing no. no not even that no. so you really do brew test batches at 15 barrels yeah. god what yeah. are you thinking well, <laughs> we're, we're confident in Tom's skills okay okay yeah, that's i've been brewing for a long time i mean we never we never really miss the mark. Uh, we don't always, you know, it's not always a bullseye exactly what we were going for, but it's it's close, and then we can tweak it from there. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. There's some things like the pop quiz series uh, didn't always turn out hazy. Uh, that was a little bit frustrating. That actually took us a, a pretty long time to figure out how to how to make it stay hazy. Well, that's because you like to make clear beer. It's just, uh, you know, it, it was not something I ever tried to do is make <laughs> you know make a beer stay hazy. So. One of the uh, yeah, one of the things I've heard from lots of old school brewers right, is that that's the a struggle. clear beers are like the way to go. You see a hazy beer, you go, what the heck? And like, I also like, I'm not an old school brewer by any means. And I totally get the hazy thing. When I have a good hazy, it's like, oh, yeah, that's the good stuff. But I still do prefer my beers to be like, I like a crystal, crystal clear, clear lager. Like, that's yeah. what I want. Um, yeah. But, um, but okay, here's a question. How do you keep your beer hazy? Like, what is the trick to making a good hazy IPA? For us, it was a, a process issue. Um, you know, we, uh, we, re, we, I mean, you're, I mean, assume the listeners are familiar with the brewing process and, you know, mashing. And so we recirculate our mash for a pretty long time in order to get uh, nice clear work going into the kettle. And basically, uh, the thing that helped us the most was stop recirculating so much. Uh, it's, it's, it helps give you clear word. It evens out the temperature in our mash ton. It, it had a bunch of different positives, but ultimately we're like, if we just stop doing that, uh, what happens is we end up with a bunch more flour, um, from the milling, making its way over into the kettle. And then, um, you know, I, I, we haven't actually done a lot of testing. I believe we're mostly getting a starch haze in our uh, in our pop quiz um, from the carryover of the flour um, from milling into the kettle, just by not recirculating until the word is clear, which we always did before. Uh, even even when it was only sort of uh, clear, if we if we Vorloff for too long, the beers just they would drop right. Um, but now now they seem to stay hazy for a nice long time so it's good is that a process that you kind of had to experiment with to figure yes. out okay so in in terms of like research what did you do because i imagine this happened to a lot of brewers where they said oh man shit hazy ipas are really popular right now i've got no idea how to do that even i'm like uh, is it hot matter is it flour is it star is it a starch haze is it, is it yeast like it literally could be any of those things is in my mind so like what did you look up beforehand 
Well, I mean, whenever we're, whenever we're trying to do something that I'm not really familiar with, we do a ton of reading, um, you know, look for articles, look for books on the subject, it, depending on what it is. There's no books on hazy IPA yet, but, uh, you know, we, we read a lot of, um, just a lot of articles and talked to brewers about, you know, what they're doing. And, uh, we've heard a lot of stories. I don't know if any of them are true about, you know, people throwing, um, applesauce into the boil to get a pectin, ha pectin haze, uh, you know, people throwing flour in the boil, people um, really just using all kinds of things in order to try to generate a haze. Um, but ultimately, you know, uh, so Sherman is our, is our lead brewer, Brian's our assistant brewer. They both still homebrew and they had no problems getting them to stay hazy at home. So really we looked at what they were doing at home compared it to what we were doing at the brewery and then started to tweak things. You know, one thing that they don't do is recirculate a bunch. So we tried that and that worked. Uh, and so we just kind of built on that. Okay. That's interesting. I, um, yeah, thinking back like, yeah, let's, I get, I blew, I brewed plenty of hazy beers. Uh, that's so funny. So I'm waiting for that hazy beer uh, book to come out because it's got to be, yeah, it's got to be just full of stuff. Like you just said, it's got like there's a dozen different ways to make it happen, and brewers are just like, they, it's funny imagining that there's this trait that they're pursuing, this haziness that has no specific way to get to, and people will do whatever they can. It's like you know, in the 1800s, people are making mattresses, and are like, people need mattresses. Fill them with hay, fill them with whatever, fill them with trash. Who cares? We need mattresses. Like people need soft things to lay on. I don't care what's in them. Like that's like, that's what a hazy thing is. People need hazy beer. I don't care how you do it. Let's make it hazy. Yeah. Um, anyway, weird. Uh, that's funny to me. Um, okay. So you mentioned a couple of things that you want to do going forward with your brewery um, or, or, or considering. You, you said you're going forward with an open mind, talking about maybe opening a second tap room. Is that an idea you guys really have really considered? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to what extent? Um, well, we've been looking around for um, possible locations. Um, um, what are some of the things you've been considering regarding opening a second tap room? Um, location um, is, the, is the main thing. Um, it's hard to think of somewhere that's not in a good commute from, our, so, from home. So... Yeah. I mean, part of it, you know, yeah. the commute is more important for me from a production standpoint, um, but we still need to, you know, if we're going to have a second tap room and I wouldn't mind having one in Seattle, I'm not, but we're not really looking there. Uh, but that can be a bad commute, you know, mm -hmm. and somebody's going to have to go there on a regular basis. You, you can, you could be an absentee owner, I suppose, but we're not, we're kind of hands-on people. So, uh, you know, you could hire a manager and a bunch of staff and just let them run it. But, um, it's just not the way we are. Uh, the The bigger thing we're focused on now is um, is moving production. Uh, we, we're looking for actively looking for more space. Uh, I don't know how long it's been since you've been in the back, but between the the new tanks and all the barrels, we have seventy barrels now. Um, it takes up a lot of space, and we're constantly playing Tetris back there to to make some space so that we can work during the day, and then you know, putting things back so that there can be seating at night. So it's, uh, it's quite a bit of wasted time and effort, um, you know, just making it so that we can work. So I'd love to find some space where we can move, uh, the barrels to start. But so ultimately, uh, this building is going to be torn down. Uh, 
Um, light rail's coming a half mile away. It's supposed to be built uh, within the next five years. This area has been rezoned. Um, they've added the uh, residential option. So, you know, we've talked to our landlord and um, at some point he will be selling this building and it's going to get torn down. So, um, you know, we talked about how long it took us to find a space and how long it took us to build it out. Uh, we need to, in my mind, we need to start looking now. If we had a space that only had barrels in it but could take the brewing equipment, I wouldn't worry about this stuff at all because, you know, we'll get enough notice that we can just go cut some floor drains and move all the stuff over there and it'll be fine. But we don't have that space. So I'm way more focused on uh, a new location for production than I am, you know, a second tap room. Okay. So the second second facility is like, it's a matter of need. It's not sort of expanding. It's just a matter of like, you got to find something one way or the other, whatever it well, is. Well, and room for expansion as well. We can't, we can't add more tanks back there. The cold room needs a, you know, it needs an upgrade. It, it's too small. Uh, there's just, there's always going to be sticking points uh, in your production, you know, really it's it's what's the what's the choke point at any given time and right now we we can't add tanks our glycol chiller is pretty much maxed but we can fix that i don't know i don't know how technical you want to get the cold yeah, room is too small as you can, the cold technical. room steals glycol from the glycol chiller so we can easily uh swap that over to a refrigeration unit and that'll solve um that problem and give us more glycol capacity but that's pointless because we don't have any space to put tanks that would use the glycol capacity um so Ultimately, what we need is a, another space where we can eventually move the tanks or we could move the barrels over there, which will give us room for more tanks. So then we can do the, the thing with the cold room, right? So it's just going to depend on kind of what, what crops up first, what's going to be the next opportunity um, to, you know, kind of improve the business. Uh, and I don't know. But, you know, we, I talk to the city planners about things that are coming and, and what might work for us and what, you know, what won't. And we got a real estate agent who's out looking for spi space for us. Um, like I said, from a production standpoint, I don't want to have a 45 to an hour commute uh, every single day. Um, that's just not fun for me as far as quality of life goes. Uh, it, in traffic, it'll take me a half hour to get here from home. But when there's no traffic, it's nine minutes. So I like a nine minute commute more than I like a 30 minute commute. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. That's the um, that's the one thing I keep on reading is the, like there's only one way, you know, in terms of improving your happiness as a human, you can do like there's basically nothing you can do. Anything you do that makes you happier, well, you'll eventually sort of treadmill your way up to being just generally content. You know, <laughs> if you get a nicer car, that car becomes your average car. You're not okay. happy anymore. But the only way that humans can consistently make themselves happier is having a less than 10 minute commute that is like scientifically proven that you have to have less than that. If you want to be 15% happier than everyone else, you know, with a bad commute, that's like an interesting. Anecdotally, I would agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I believe that's true. I will not cite any source here. because I don't remember what stupid ass Buzzfeed article I read it on, but, uh, but you know, whatever. Um, so you've got, at least two other people heavily, heavily involved in the brewery, your spouses. Um, you're talking about all these huge changes you've got to do to, you know, move forward, see how the brewery is going to change. Uh, what are your decision? What's your decision process like when you're sort of, when you've got four people who've got to weigh in? <laughs> I'll let you start with that one. 
Uh, well, mainly it's Tom and I, and um, we try to come up with something. Um, if we find a space and we think it's the right thing, then we'll put it to the other two. But they're basically going, we're here day to day, and they both have other jobs. So um, I think it's really when, when we can agree on what's the right thing to do, then they're the, uh, we have to pitch our case and, and go from there. That makes sense. But like yeah. she said, if Debbie and I agree on something, then there's there's really no discussion about it. It's, yeah, it's they're happy with here's that. what we think we need to do. And they're like, well, if you guys agree, that makes sense. Because like she said, we're the ones who are here every day. Mm -hmm. So, um, okay, so that's that's fun to know. So your spouses are sort of tangentially involved, I guess. Um, they're in it because you're in it and they've got their day job still and they're doing their things. Um, they, uh, and I, I assume you guys are, just, so you're here every day, so you do work here full time. You don't have your other day jobs or whatever. Okay. Um, I mean, I don't want to minimize their contribution. I mean, I wouldn't say they're necessarily tangentially involved. You know, they, they definitely contribute a lot to what we're doing here, not just moral support. Um, you know, they have their roles that they fill, but they can fill them uh, in their spare time after their day jobs. Right. Okay. okay. Just want to make that clear. Of course. Very important. Uh, yeah, I obviously don't want to, you know, discount what they do. Uh, just trying to get the image. Just, just yeah. to be clear, if, if yeah. Julie didn't do what she does, our staff would not be happy. She takes care of our staff. She does payroll. She does all the HR stuff. So it's a very critical role. Okay. <laughs> of course. Sorry. Um, uh, anyway, I um, So I guess the reason I asked that question is because... Um, I actually am on the, have you guys heard of Flying Bike Brewery? Sure. I, I'm, I'm, I, I recently got on a board of directors at that brewery and I have been like now I'm working to, you know, sort of lead a brewery in a direction as a committee, which is kind of like a f interesting thing to have to do when you're trying to make, you know, you're like, hey, I want to make this happen. But I. How big is the committee? Nine. We have nine, nine board of directors. So that's um, it's a pretty big group of people to do, and we have to meet every week in order to just say like, do we want to buy a crowler machine, and you know, like that yes. kind of you know that kind of right. stuff. Um, hey, have you guys considered buying a crowling mach crowler machine? Uh, we have considered yes. it many times, and we've decided no. What's kept you from it? Um, mostly, it's the uh, the space involved. Um, we don't, you know, the bar is pretty packed as it is in terms of glassware and tap handles and all that stuff. Uh, yeah. We have a, a can seamer that we use um, to create four packs of one-off beers. And um, so it's it's like a crowler, uh, you know, we'll do four packs of 16 ounce cans. And it's a, you know, the label looks very crowler-like. It's handwritten what's in it and all that stuff. Um, but they just get done ahead of time, uh, yeah. not on the spot. On the spot, you know, it looks nice for people. And I, I'm not saying that it's a terrible idea at all. I'm just saying it doesn't really fit. Uh, we don't have the space for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mentioned earlier something that I wanted to bring up again. The uh, that Peter and the Rye, that the beer that my buddy brewed, and you said you remembered it. Uh, what was that experience like? Was that like a homebrew competition or something that basically you guys hosted? Thank you so much, Tom, Jason, and Debbie. Next week, catch part two. This episode was produced by me, the cycling certified Cicerone, music by Lee Roosevelt. If you like what you heard, you can leave a review or a comment on Apple Podcasts, or maybe go back to Facebook and leave a like. Definitely share this podcast with your friends. That would really help me out. This podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, now including Spotify. Spotify.